0: Today's scripture reading is from James 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, or a grape front, ga- grape vine produce figs, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise thee be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Pat.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Um, when you uh, introduce 113 people to your church as new members, you just have to get straight to the point with the sermon and cut some time off. So I'm just going to get straight to the point. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, is a lie. Psychology Today rewrote that phrase to read as follows. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can cut me deeply. We know this conceptually. We also know this experientially. Uh, Because of words, many of us have ended up for a long time in a counseling office. Many of us, because of words, have experienced the end of a relationship or the end of a career. Uh, Another pastor from Atlanta named Andy Stanley once said, I can say five wrong words in front of a crowd of people and it will end my ministry for the rest of my life. Words can also give confidence, courage, healing... And and set our lives on a a positive trajectory. And so so James wants us to understand what we already know and, and, and bring to our minds and to our hearts what we already know, and that is that the tongue is a very, very small instrument, but we should never, ever, ever let its size fool us. We should never underestimate its power both to tear down and to build up, so let's talk about the power of words. Remember, it was words that brought the galaxies into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God said and there was. He spoke the galaxies into, the, into existence with a breath. Words have the power to redeem. Paul talks about the words of the gospel message of Jesus Christ in, in Romans 1.16, and he says the, 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 the gospel is something that he's not ashamed of because the gospel is the power, or the Greek word dynamis or dynamite, the gospel is the power of God, the dynamite of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Words have the power to bring a dead person to life. You may be familiar with that story in John chapter 11, where Jesus speaks into the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who has been deceased for four days, and he says, Lazarus, come forth, and it says that the dead man got up and came out of the building and lived again. So James uses three images to to drive home even further our understanding of the power of words. He talks about a bit in the horse's mouth, which, you know, we're right across the street almost from the steeplechase. Uh, many of you are equestrian uh, types. You understand this, that, that, that the way that you manipulate the reins and, and control the bit in the horse's mouth will determine whether or not the, the, the horse runs like poetry in motion and, and clears the hurdles, or whether the horse topples over the hurdles and and sends the horse rider, uh, you know, flying, you know, to a severe injury. All of that has to do with that little bit inside that big horse's mouth. He talks about the power of the rudder for a ship. That rudder has the power, he says, to overcome and defy even violent winds if it's steered and handled properly. But if the the rudder is mishandled, uh, it can can go toward and and eventually collide with an iceberg or some other large object, and and then the ship, the whole ship, because of that small rudder, goes down like the Titanic. And then the last image he uses is fire. You know, you may remember the song, you know, the 70s song, I think, or 60s, hippie time. Um, It only takes a spark to get a fire going, and soon all those around will warm up in its glowing. Well, we won't always warm up in its glowing, right? I mean, a fire… the fire does have uh, life-giving purposes, providing heat in the cold months, providing comfort with the heat… Cooking bacteria out of food so that the food will nourish us instead of uh, give us an illness. Create ambiance for, for friendship and dinners together and, and, and romantic moments. But a fire, even just a spark of fire with the right conditions can set a whole forest on fire, can bring a house down, can destroy a neighborhood, can destroy an entire city, can leave scars and burns It all has to do with how these small instruments are handled. So let's talk about a couple of things. First, how words have the power to tear down, and then how words have the power to build up. Words can tear down. We can use our words in such a way that it makes things worse, that it crushes a human soul instead of lifting a human soul. So I I particularly enjoy Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible that's called The Message. It works sort of like a running commentary to me. He's just got great sort of poetic insights into the various texts of Scripture. And he paraphrases verses 6 and 7 here this way. By our speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke and go up in smoke with it, Smoke right from the pit of hell, and this is scary, Peterson says. That's an understatement. So, what are some examples of of the destructive use of words? One is lies. Speaking things that are not true is a way to steal the truth from other people and to actually force people to live in a false reality and to make judgments and decisions based on things that are not factual. And, and, and when we do this, when we lie, we actually force other people to live and, and to make judgments and decisions in a false reality without getting their consent for it, which means that, 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 that we are uh, also culpable of theft, not only untruth, but theft, we're stealing the truth from people when we lie. Flattery is another version of, of, of a corrupt use of words. Flattering is is when you say you weren't hurt or you weren't offended when you were. Flattery is saying I'm okay and you're okay when you're not really okay. It's exaggerated praise. It's to take a good thing, praise, and to exaggerate, which turns it into a not helpful thing. If If we really love somebody, this will include uh, what you could call redemptive truth-telling and having the courage to speak the truth in love to somebody who, as Galatians 6 says, is caught in a transgression. If somebody is is stuck in a pattern of transgression, Galatians 6 says, you who are spiritual should restore that person and do so gently. Now, the word restore was a medical term. It was used in the medical literature of the, uh, of the first century to describe the resetting of a bone. And anybody who's ever broken a bone and had to have your bone reset, you know that the initial feeling of that confrontation with your broken bone is, is incredibly disruptive, incredibly disorienting, very painful. But, but, but they say that oftentimes a reset bone, if it is reset properly ends up in the long run stronger than the, the bone was before it was broken in the first place. But it takes a, a, a sort of medic- medicinal courage on the part of a friend or a family member or the, the person who Paul calls the spiritual person to reset the character. Psalm 141.5 says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Or as Oscar Wilde once said, A true friend stabs you in the front, not as with a sword to punish you, but as with a scalpel to contribute to your healing. So, uh, the Lord's uh, timing is, is actually, for me, not very funny, but sometimes very necessary because this happened to me this past week when I hurt somebody I love, and and, and this person also loves me, I hurt them with my words. I used sharp words when I should have used gentle words, and they actually put verse 1 in front of me, not many of you should be teachers. And this person was essentially telling me, your private use of speech right there is not congruent with your public use of speech. You're not demonstrating consistency in your private life in this moment as you do, you know, with your public life. And so, right now, in real time, I'm preaching to you as a hypocrite. And I I say this not to uh, invite you to applaud me, but to invite you to pray for me. Because not many of us should be teachers. We will be judged more severely for our words than anyone because we have a lot more words to dispense. And the beautiful thing about this person's posture when they were correcting me and resetting that bone was that they gave me the gift of words in two ways. Number one, you're wrong. And it was a gift. And number two, I love you. Number one, you're wrong. Number two, I love you. Flattery would leave me in a crippled state. But because somebody had the courage to point these things out, they demonstrate true love to me by stabbing me, not in the back through gossip and slander, but stabbing me in the front, not with a sword but with a scalpel. Rude words is another one, words that, that, that are accompanied by a bite, Thing, words that, 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 that the Bible refers to as coarse joking or crude joking. Insults designed to punish and to, to dig. Biting sarcasm. Presidential politics. Sarcasm originates from a Greek word. And the Greek word is sarcotzain, and it, it literally means to strip flesh off. That's what sarcasm does. That's the effect, that's the impact, and, and it bites the receiver, sarcasm does, and it also exposes the speaker. Edmund Burke once said that rudeness is the weak man's imitation of strength. Rudeness, sarcasm, Coarse joking, it is all symptomatic of a fragile ego that craves any kind of attention, even if it is dysfunctional laughter. Abusive words would be another way that words are misused in a corrupt and hurtful way. The Center for Disease Control says that the third leading cause of death among young people is suicide. And the CDC also says that, that the majority of teenagers in particular who reach that desperate point of, of, of taking their own lives is because they are being bullied. And did you know that the same is, is also true when, when, when we hear stories about these tragic school shootings? Oftentimes, as the, the narrative, as the story of the shooter is unfolded, it… it, it 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 becomes clear most of the time that the shooter has been bullied by somebody or by a group. Like gossip and slander, abusive words, bullying words work like pornography of the mouth. Sharp, harsh, coarse words are a lot like pornography because what they do is they seek a cheap thrill at the expense of somebody else without making any commitment whatsoever to that person. And then once the cheap thrill is gained, the person has been used and abused, then the person is discarded. It's staggering how the misuse of words can resemble pornography. There is a psychology behind character assassination. We do violence to another human soul in order to medicate our own fragile souls with poison. That's the word that James uses, poison. And the verdict that James, the half-brother of Jesus, gives us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the the verdict that he gives us under the destructive use of words uh, is, is essentially the same thing that that the, the church father Chrysostom once said, and that is that destructive words are worse than cannibalism. Because instead of eating somebody dead, you're eating them alive, which makes it even worse. You're doing violence to a soul. You know, verse 9 James says, with the tongue, he's pointing out our hypocrisy here. He's pointing out my hypocrisy. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now, there's a very significant historical context for these words into the the particular time in history that James was writing these words. The Roman emperors would regularly erect statues of themselves in their cities and nations and such of jurisdiction, and the statues that they would put above themselves were to be treated in the same way that you would treat the emperor face to face. And and if you were to insult the statue of the emperor, you would be prosecuted as if you had insulted the emperor to his face. And, 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 And so what James is saying is there is a There is an emperor above all emperors, a king above all kings. And to insult his image, to insult a human being made in the image of God, it is as if you are insulting God to his very face. You know, Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, that anybody who flippantly refers to his brother as a fool, as raka, is in danger of the fires of hell. You know, like James says, you know, the wrong choice of words has, has the potential to set the entire trajectory of somebody's life and and, and, and bring about destruction. But there's also a, a positive, positive to this. I mean, James is, is, is… I don't know about you, but he's kicking me in the rear so far. But I think it's helpful to understand that that, that every negative instruction also has a positive life-giving application. And that is that words also have the power, just as much as words have the power to tear down, they also have the power to build up. Using words to make things better, using words to heal the human soul, is what James is after positively. Verse 10, from the same mouth Come blessing and cursing, my brothers. Pay attention to those two words, my brothers. Adelphoi, thats a gender-inclusive word. My brothers and sisters, daughters and sons of God. These things ought not to be so. What should be so then? What should be so is what it says in Colossians four six. Let your speech always be gracious. It's a comprehensive word. In every situation, let your speech be gracious. Let them represent the heart and character of God who loves you. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build one another up. To encourage literally means to put courage into somebody else. I mean, I'll never forget that, that quote from Mariah Carey, the musician, when she was at the peak of her career, talking about her depression, and, 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 and when asked about how she could get depressed while being so successful, and, and she said, I can hear a thousand words of praise and just one criticism, and that one criticism will destroy me and make me immediately forget about this, the thousand words of praise. Our souls are fragile. The human soul is magnificent and fragile, you know, be kind, remember? Be kind because everyone you meet is fighting a hidden battle. Everyone you meet. I remember a couple of Christmases ago, uh, Ann Voskamp came here uh, along with uh, Ellie Holcomb and, and Amina Brown, and they did a, they did a Christmas event uh, here, and, and, and I'll never, ever, ever forget one of the things that Ann said. She said tongues surrendered to Jesus speak words that make souls stronger This isn't just a negative application don't you know don't don't corrupt your speech it's also replace corrupt speech with life-giving words that bring about creation and redemption and resurrection in the lives of the people around you. And you'll find that it brings these things about in your life too, as you speak these life giving words and use your words to make souls stronger instead of to crush a soul and do violence to a soul. One of the greatest examples I've ever witnessed of this over a sustained period of time is, is, is Tim Keller. When 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 we we were in New York City and I worked alongside Tim uh, for about five years and got to witness his life up close... um, much closer than I ever had before. You know, when, when we were headed there in the first place, I thought, you know, this is going to be great. I get to work alongside and learn from one of the greatest Christian thought leaders of our time, many calling him the C.S. Lewis of, of our day, uh, one of the greatest preachers I've ever listened to, and, 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 and I just can't wait to, to absorb all of this, you know, giftedness, right? And then it didn't take long for me to start respecting him for other things even more. When you get close to somebody who has a a big public profile, and and, and then you discover that they have kept their character and actually have grown in their character in the process of becoming well-known, it's pretty stunning. Three things that that were deep, deep commitments to Tim, and I didn't see, see him violate any of these three once in the course of five years. One was always resist giving a bad report about somebody else. In other words, steer clear of slander, steer clear of gossip, steer clear of stabbing people in the back. If you have to stab somebody, stab them in the front with a scalpel and not a sword. Surgically, with gentleness, not with harshness and a will to punish. You know, verbalizing other people's sins and weaknesses and flaws and offenses with people who are neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. Never saw him violate that. The second one was, actively and intentionally catch other people doing good. Proactively seek to reverse the negative verdicts that everybody carries around with them because everyone you meet is fighting a hidden battle. And then the the last one was, don't respond to insults with insults. Don't respond even to unfair critique with sharp Defensiveness. Even when the critique is unfair, he would say, and, and and he would live this. Even when the critique was unfair. He 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 would he would have this regular discipline of just saying, look, okay, so unfair critique. However, is there a kernel of truth somewhere in there so I can find something to repent of and, and draw even closer to Jesus through it? This is really important for things like parenting, for instance. Two of the most powerful words. You know, lest we we foolishly think that the best thing that we can do for our kids, those of us who are parents, that the best thing we can do for our kids is live a flawless life in front of them where where we never fail in front of them or at least never own up to it when we have. Two of the most powerful words for healthy parents, which happen to be two words that, that, that I struggle to say Oftentimes, two of the most powerful words for parents are I'm sorry. And then follow it up with will you please forgive me? Those are incredibly powerful healing life giving words. I am sorry. I was wrong. This is true in marriage, it's true in friendship, it's true in office relationships. When I am a bad, bad father, not a good, good father. When I am a bad, bad friend, a bad, bad colleague, a bad, bad neighbor, I am sorry are the two most, or I'm sorry, three words. They're the most powerful words I can say. They're resurrecting words. They're creative and redemptive words. And the beautiful thing, and this is what we'll close with, the beautiful thing about all of this is we have, those of us who are trusting in Christ— which I don't assume that's everybody here, but but those of us who are trusting in Christ, there is an emotional resource. Here's one of the fringe benefits of being united with Christ through faith. We have an emotional resource that enables us to say things like, I'm sorry, and to catch people doing good, and to resist a bad report, and to not strike back with sharp defensiveness and sarcasm that bites. And the clue here is in verses 1 and 10 where he says, my brothers… It's a term of endearment that James is using to people that he's rebuking sharply. You know, it's reminiscent of what he said uh, a couple of weeks ago when he was rebuking them for for showing partiality toward the rich and, and ignoring the poor, and then he finishes that section by saying, oh yeah, remember this, mercy triumphs over judgment. The grace of God is always going to be running ahead of your sin and your failure if you're in Christ. You know, it, it, he, but here he's calling us back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six. When, when Isaiah said, you know, after he gets a vision of the holiness of God, he says, he says, "Woe is me! I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips." He was recognizing himself to be a preacher who preaches with hypocrisy, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. And what does God do? He sends an angel. With a healing coal from the altar of sacrifice and touches the prophet's lips and says, Do not fear, for this coal has touched your lips. Your guilt has been removed. Your sin has been atoned for. You have been made at one with God by grace. Zephaniah 3 then follows with, with words. That are life giving, that make souls stronger, that the Lord your God delights in you. He rejoices over you with loud singing. Or Isaiah 52, more healing words that make souls stronger. As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so the Lord your God rejoices over you. Or Zechariah 2, you are the apple of the emperor's eye. Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, no more shame words. For those who are in Christ, a verdict, a negative verdict reversal. A malediction turned into a benediction. A bad word turned into a good one. How is this possible for God to build us up this way? He builds us up this way by tearing Jesus down on the cross. He unshames us this way through Jesus bearing our shame. He protects us by Jesus getting bullied. He blesses us by Jesus getting a curse. He accepts us by Jesus being condemned. This is what the table in front of us means. This is a table where Jesus gave us more words saying, this is my body broken for you, my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what better way to respond to a message like this than to respond to his words of generous invitation to his table.